Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, the scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And you may be seated as we read. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now of silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come to this moment, this moment of reflection, this moment of considering where we are in life. We come to this moment and to these scriptures from very different places and and various places in our own spiritual journey. Some of us believing, others of us unbelieving or doubtful or cynical or skeptical. Most of us a mixture of all of these things. We come to this moment hopeful and joyful. Come to this moment heavy-hearted or angry or fearful or depressed or addicted. And yet, Lord, however we come to this moment right now, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is more of a mess than we even know, uh, more broken than we want the person next to us to realize. And at the same time, you see us in all of our complexity and contradiction, and your response is to love us and to move toward us in the sacrificial love of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so help us to see the most difficult thing of all, to trust the most difficult piece of the entire story, that you love us this much. And teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. 
We pray all these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, as I mentioned earlier, we had our monthly Know Your Neighbor gathering yesterday. It was right outside here. And although it is uh, Know Your Neighbor COVID edition, so it's not the live music and the, the party and the, the uh, barbecue and all of that, it still is a really, really great time of coming together with our neighbors. And, and as you have made these grab-and-go lunch bags for us to distribute, we've also begun um, ordering hot pizzas as well so people get a slice of hot pizza with a good lunch for later. And in the midst of all that, all sorts of people who wouldn't normally come together end up gathering together. People who would usually walk past each other and talk past each other end up standing with one another about six feet apart and sharing their stories. And so they move from stranger to friend. And sometimes they move from stranger to friend to brother and sister, to family. Yesterday I was struck as one friend stopped and told his story of how he almost died of meningitis on the streets and he just thought he had the flu and almost went to sleep for one last time. And it was at the urging of a family member that he finally went to the hospital. If he would have waited 10 hours later, he would not be with us today. And he told his near-death experience. And another friend there um, comes forward and tells the story of how the closest person in his life passed away 10 years ago. And his response when he was looking for hope was to go and read the newspaper to veterans who had lost their eyesight in battle, remembering that he still has something to give in this world. And then I look over as um, Janie and her daughter Celeste, members of this church, wonderful, wonderful members of this church, are standing and talking to a lady as she's just sharing her life story, and they are as well. And that barrier between stranger and friend begins to get blurred, and the neighborhood comes together. Now, one of the things that happens when we're doing all of that because the idea is, it's, you know, our neighbors, it's our neighbors without homes and our neighbors with homes. It really is all of us coming together. And, but it's happening in the mix of the Saturday morning brunch rush right here in North Park. And so you have people you know, dressed up and ready to go meet their friends for brunch. They, they're not really interested in a slice of pizza. But they stop and they go, what's going on here? Like, what, why do you do what you do? And we, you know, depending on who's answering, we try to answer from the heart something about because we believe that God cares about your soul, but he also cares about uh, your body. He wants you to be fed spiritually and and your hunger. He he cares about individuals, but he cares about the entire community coming together. And people just scratch their head and kind of look at you sideways and go, you know, I'm not much of a church-going person, but I'm really glad that you're here doing this. You know, This, this is good stuff going on right here. See, when you talk about caring for the poor, when you talk about building community, culturally, the wind is kind of at your back, right? The the, the culture likes this kind of stuff. But when you come to a passage like we just read, where it talks about humility, culturally, the wind is in your face. Because we live in a post-enlightenment, individualistic, consumeristic society that says you look out for you. And so it's competition. Humility is, is, is is the kryptonite to competition. See, we want, um, we want not just to be wealthy. We want to be wealthier than the other people around us. We want to be not just good looking. We want to be better looking than the other people around us. We don't just want food, clothing, and shelter. We want better food and clothing and shelter than the other people around us. And yet, humility according to the Apostle Paul and according to the witness of the billions of human beings who have gone before us. Humility is at the core of the virtues that you and I need in order to thrive as a human being and to be honestly and deeply connected in relationship with those that are closest to you 
and to be connected in society in general, right? Now, you know, as you look out upon the landscape of our country right now, as relationally, we are all on fire. Humility could be part of the water that comes and helps to cleanse and renew and bring us all together. So let's unpack this. Let's look at the problem of humility, the pattern of humility, the fuel of humility, and finally the result of humility. First, the problem of humility. And I already touched on this. We all want to live in a community where there are no fighting or divisions, where there's love and oneness of spirit, and instead we have political polarization, violence, especially right now we're looking at violence along racial lines, and war. Now, someone astutely says, yeah, 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 but the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter that we just read, he wrote it to an early church in Philippi, uh, which was in Europe, Paul's writing to the church, and I'd say, yes, exactly. That's the point. See, there's something wrong with the human heart, even inside a community like the church, that is supposed to be formed on the forgiveness and love and acceptance of Christ. There are still divisions and disunity and people pushing one another away. Churches experience fighting and divisions just like the rest of the world. The question is why? And Paul comes to us today, this scripture comes to us today and says, because there's a problem deep down with the human heart. And he writes in verse 3, if you're going to have oneness, if you're going to have unity, if you're going to have a community that actually can be truly known and truly loved, then you need to get rid of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Okay, let's consider that. The pattern of humility is getting rid of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition, if you translate that from Greek, it's not all that that hard to figure out, right? Selfish ambition is when you do things just for yourself above and beyond anybody else. So watch out, red flag, if you start looking out just for number one without anybody else around you, okay? But vain conceit is a little more intriguing to unpack, and I actually think it's the key to the whole pattern. Because the word for vain conceit in Greek actually comes from two words, um, kinodoxia. Kino means to empty yourself. And doxia comes, you know, doxology means praise. Saying do nothing from that place where you feel like you are praise empty, where you are power hungry, where you feel, you know, where you feel like you have no meaning or no honor. If you come into this world feeling like Um, You are glory empty, hungry for honor, hungry for respect, because deep down you think or you feel like you don't have any value. Watch out. Watch out. You know, we've said before that hurt people are the ones that hurt people. And you've probably experienced before being in a group where the person talking over the others in the room and not creating any space for them, or the person who's most disrespectful to the group is actually coming from a place of very low self-esteem. This goes all the way back to grade school when when your parent or your guardian told you, you know, the bullies out there, they're they're really the ones that have the lowest self-image, right? This is why so many of us can identify with the idea of being an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. When we come from that power-hungry, that power-empty place, humility is impossible. Now, I want you to consider that when you scale this all the way out to what it means to be a human being, that we as humans experience radical cosmic insecurity. 
As human beings, we feel like, deep down, I don't count, I don't matter, I need assurance that I'm okay, that I'm important, that I count. I mean, some of us cover that feeling up better than others. But let me just ask you, are you aware of how much the power hunger or the meaning hunger in your life is driving all sorts of behaviors and decisions that you're making right now? And you can see why being glory empty, feeling like I don't care, can lead to division. You see this in street gangs. To use street gangs as an example, oftentimes the people most vulnerable to being recruited into street gangs are those who feel the most like, A, society doesn't care about them, and B, their family doesn't love them. And when you get that type of person involved in a street gang, all of a sudden, if you slight them slightly, they're pulling a gun on you. Now, someone says that's just them, you know, that's just people with low self-esteem, except when you look at history or you look at modern geopolitics, every empire and country and nation state operates the exact same way. If you slight them slightly, they're ready to go to war against you, which tells us this is actually a much bigger issue than we might have considered. Now, why is that? I invite you to consider the diagnosis that the Bible gives to us. When it says we were created in the image and likeness of God to live forever. But we have walked away from God and so we're decaying and we're dying. Where it says we were created in the image and likeness of God to know the favor of God's presence and love. And yet we walked away and so we're fading. And so I think as a result, we don't feel real. We don't feel substantial. We don't feel significant. There is this nagging sense that there has to be more to this. And so we look to anybody we can to say, tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm important. Tell me I matter. Tell me I'm significant. We look to our careers to tell us this. We look to our bank accounts to tell us this. We will look to anything to shake them by the shoulders and say, tell me that I have glory. Now, some of us, and we're not aware of this, some of us put our hard shell on and armor on us to say, actually, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't need anybody else. Because deep down, we're actually afraid that if we showed the soft underbelly and exposed ourselves in a vulnerable way, that we'd be hurt, that we'd be run over. At any rate, we all want unity and harmony and oneness. But we work against it because we're glory empty deep within. Now, that's the problem of humility. So what's the pattern of humility? Elsewhere, let me take you to two places where Jesus talks about humility. In Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Later on, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. What's he saying? He's saying, if you come to God and say to God, I want a relationship with you. Look at all that I've accomplished. Look at all that I've done. Look at what a good person that I am. Look at what a moral and upstanding person that I am. I'm not as bad as those people. I'm a good person. God, you have to accept me. I think God looks at you and says, you don't understand me. You don't understand yourself. You don't understand the cross of Jesus Christ and all he came to do for you. 
But when you come to God humbly and say, God, I need you, I probably need you even more than I realize. I don't have anything I can present to you to say that I have earned your love. I simply need you because you love me. I think God begins to say, now you're understanding the key to my grace, to my love, to my mercy, to my acceptance. That is what faith looks like in responding to his grace. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. And paradoxically, when you realize that you actually have need and you have nothing and you present yourself to God in that way, he says, come now into my kingdom and be showered with a love and an acceptance that you could never possibly imagine. And when you have that sort of love and acceptance, you begin to know who you are. So you don't need to be wealthier. You don't need to be better looking. You don't need to have a bigger home. You can begin to think less of your, or think of yourself less instead of thinking less of yourself. The pattern of humility. It's right-sized thinking. We also get this pattern of humility in those verses from 5 onward, where it talks about how Jesus, though he was in the very image and likeness of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, poured himself out on behalf of others, humbled himself, being, um, being brought into form of human likeness, even to the point of death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him. Right? Downward mobility. The upside-down kingdom of God, where the way up, is actually the way down. Now, how do you do this? Let me just say, don't try this without the gospel. I want to zoom in on this one verse, verse 7. Actually, we'll back up. Verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness. So what's the fuel for humility? I think the key is in verse 7. Jesus Christ emptied himself. Now, do you know what the Greek word that for empty is in that passage? Kenosis. Sound familiar? See, we operate out of kenodoxia. We em- operate out of a glory emptiness. We're hungry for glory more and more. We're hungry for significance. We're hungry for worth. We chase it. We strive after it. We're exhausted when others disagree, we strike them down. When, uh, if not with our actions, at least with our words. If not with our words, at least with our thoughts. When others can't supply that to us, we discard them like an old model of some sort of contraption, and we try to get the upgrade to the newer model. And we end up alone, frustrated, resentful. But here's Jesus, who was not glory-hungry, but glory-full, and voluntarily emptied himself of all glory. Now here's the question. Why did Jesus empty himself of all glory? People talk about the suffering of Christ on the cross, and he certainly suffered on the cross. In fact, he suffered so much on the cross that when, um, when the Romans wanted to describe the worst kind of pain in the world, they had to invent a new word, excruciating. Excruciating pain simply means pain that comes excruce, off the cross. That kind of pain. He certainly suffered there. But Scripture shows us he suffered long before that. He suffered the moment he became a human being. Going from all God, with all, all power and authority and equality with God, 
and choosing to divest himself, to empty himself of that glory to be found in human form, to know for the first time God knows what it's like to be cold. God knows what it's like to be betrayed. God knows what it's like to be hungry. God knows what it's like to sit on an unfair trial at the hands of the empire as he did in his final day in his earthly ministry. He enters into our suffering, takes it upon himself on the cross, identifying with us in our emptiness, taking it upon himself and coming out the other side in the resurrection showing the final word on this world is not meaninglessness, is not emptiness. It doesn't just, the ball doesn't keep rolling down the hill until it finally just goes off the cliff into oblivion. But the final word on this world, the final word on that glory emptiness is actually light and life. It's resurrection. He will never leave you or forsake you. Now let me ask you, why did he do all that? What did Christ gain by emptying himself? He didn't gain glory. He already had that. He gained you and me. What is the one thing he could gain? He could gain you. God loved the whole world so much that he gave his only son. When you see that he loves you like that, not just that God loves humanity in general, but God loves you specifically. God knitted you together in your mother's womb, knows the hairs on your head. Before you were born, your days were numbered before him, knows all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses even better than you do. And he voluntarily empties himself on your behalf and gives himself to you. See, that's a new kind of fuel altogether. To see what he's done for you and to let it propel you forward out of a place of deep, beloved significance and identity. Now, let's apply this real quick. What's the result of this? First is, you can be both humble and confident at the same time. See, humble confidence seems like an oxymoron. seems like two ideas that could never go together. And yet a Christian actually can be humble and confident at the same time. A Christian, when you see someone you disagree with, someone you can't stand, someone you think you're better than, you're humble. You tell yourself, it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to make me right with God. So I have no stones to throw at anybody else. You can be humble. But you can also be confident because you say, God gladly went to the cross for me and gave himself on my behalf because he loves me that much. A new, humble confidence that allows you to move out, especially at a moment like this in our society, with our political discourse, and I use that word very lightly because it's more like a political, polarized shouting match, where you can hold your convictions, speak them truthfully in love, and have space with people with whom you completely disagree. Humble and confident. It means you engage with humility. You know, so many of you have experienced before someone who is a Christian, who never misses church, who can recite the Bible, who goes to the prayer group, who goes to the community group, who does all of kind of the Christian outward signs and symbols, and yet they are the least approachable person in the room the most judgmental person in the room, the person that makes you feel the worst. When you fail, they are the last person you would go to. And Paul says, the Apostle Paul, who also wrote this scripture, says, don't you know that if you could speak with language like angels, I mean, if you could work miracles in the middle of the world, 
but you don't have love. You're just like a, you're a clanging gong, a resounding cymbal. You're a musical instrument that can't even make the noise it's supposed to make. Because it starts with this deeply rooted knowledge that you are beloved. And so we have political disagreements. We have them with conviction. In this season, we remember that Jesus Christ is neither from the right or from the left. Jesus is from above. And so he reserves the right to critique all of it. We hold it humbly. It means you can be comforted in this moment. It means you can be comforted, especially right now, with all of the ups and downs and uncertainty of everything that's happening in our lives. Because Jesus is fully human, has fully emptied himself, that he actually understands you. Are you worried right now? He knows what it's like to worry. Do you look at the world around you and say, I don't like the direction it's going. And I don't know when it's going to stop. He says, I have wept over the city of Jerusalem. A God who meets you in all of your fear, in all of your worry, in all your failure. And walks with you. And promises to see you through all of it. And finally, you can be sent out. Unity is essential to the life of the church. And what I'm, I'll give you an example. There was a, a man named Leslie Newbegin, who was one of my favorite scholars and missiologists and pastors of the 20th century. He was a British man who lived 40 years or so, maybe more, in India. And he realized in India that the people he was meeting were laughing at him when he was commending Jesus Christ to them and sharing about the love of God in Christ. And people would say to him, I find that very hard to believe. Because the Methodists were here yesterday and they told us not to listen to you. And the Baptists were here the day before them and told us not to listen to them. And the Lutherans were here the day before them and told us not to listen to them. And the Catholics were here the day before them. And on and on and on. And so I find it really hard to believe in a God that loves and accepts and brings all people together when you all can't even get along with one another. And Leslie Newbegin realized that Christian unity is actually essential. It's when, when we get it right, in fits and starts, you know why it's so hard? Because you're part of the church. You know why it's so hard? Because I'm part of the church. But when we get it right, in fits and starts, it becomes a pointer to the watching world of the kingdom of God as Christ is bringing all people together. Now, that's not a new idea. That's actually what Jesus was praying for in John chapter 17, the night he was with his friends and his followers before he goes to the cross and he prays what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he says, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they would be one in us so that the world would know that you sent me. I mean, let's just use politics at a very high level. Yeah, something very uh, neutral like politics. Um, it, would, it would not surprise anyone in North Park if you told them that there's a church in North Park that's a very politically conservative church and they all get together every week. doesn't surprise anybody. It wouldn't surprise anybody if you told them there's a church in North Park where everybody has really progressive politics and they all get together once a week. You know what shocks the world is when you can say those two groups of people come together around this table with all of their differences, with all their differences of opinion, and yet they're unified, not around their political unity, but they're unified around Christ who knows them and loves them and gives himself for them. The watching world goes, hold on. No, 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 no. I know how to deal with disagreement. 
I either demonize the person and throw stones at them from across the room. I, you know, I, I either block them on Facebook or I write the meanest things I can. I go off and I find other people that agree with me and get them against those people. But you guys all don't fully, you're not on the same page on all these things, and yet you're all together. What could possibly bring you together? And we would say, Jesus Christ moves toward us in all of our beauty and brokenness. Jesus Christ loves us and forgives us when we get it and when we don't get it. And so we are both confident and humble, and we create space for one another as we come together. And that's a picture to the watching world, the kingdom of God, as it comes. I think that's what Paul's getting at as he rounds out his thought here. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, when we live this way, with a confident humility that's rooted in him, you actually become more truly human, more buoyant, more flexible, more resilient, more hopeful. But also, the world is shown what the glory of God looks like. So as we pray for God's coming kingdom that is marked by love, by justice, by forgiveness, by unity, we are also called to be both citizens and ambassadors of that coming kingdom and to live it out now. Friends, this is the deep calling, but as we do it, you will never be the same. And as we do it, this is what transforms the world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, please now help us to see that you come humbly to us, that you empty yourself on our behalf so that we can be full. The truth of the matter is, for such a people with more access to wealth and resources than any civilization on the history of the earth, we do deep down feel like we are glory hungry. Help us to see that and to realize that admitting that is not weakness. That's actually possibly the first step toward being full of your strength. Help us to live with a confident humility, even as we pray for the transformation of this world. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.